I'm Scott Warren, President of Culinary Stories of Chicago, and welcome you as we celebrate the spirit of chocolate this morning. Our speaker, <clears throat> Ramona Thomas, will, well, I could use a chocolate cough drop right now, uh, will enrobe us with a passion for cacao, but more on that in a moment. A few <clears throat> announcements first. Um, I, I keep on thinking that, that's uh, that, sorry, but you know, like, Miss um, Piggy, I've got a, I've got a frog in my throat right now. So uh, anyway, so I can't come to the phone right now. I've got a frog in my throat. Sorry, but that's what came up. Uh, anyway, a few announcements first. Uh, we have some distinguished guests here. I know. Um, Dino, Dean, and his wife Coretta, who have something interesting. That uh, Dino, where are you? Oh, okay. um, could, could you speak for about a minute or two minutes on what you do for sure? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I met Dino at our speaker's shop uh, when I went in the first time to try her chocolates, and I'm a fascinating guy. So, Scott and greetings and good morning to everybody. My name is Dino Dean. Can you hear me now? Oh yeah. Very good. Good morning everybody. My name is Dino Dean and that is my wife over there sitting behind Dr. Thomas. Her name is Coretta and she goes by Miss Coretta and we are the Black Foodies and we review restaurants all over Chicago, actually all over the country and with an emphasis here in Chicago because this is where we're based and we're also contributing writers for the Chicago Defender. And I just want to share with everybody, just briefly, the wonderful culinary journey we have had here in Chicago. And I will say this, and I hate to put a second city on the second city, but it is the absolute second best culinary city in the country. New Orleans is number one, I have to keep it real. <laughs> the food down here is absolutely spectacular. But I just wanted to encourage everybody to come out and see some of the wonderful restaurants. And we also emphasize African-American restaurants and African-American chefs. So come on out of your comfort zone and come out to some different parts of the city. You will discover some absolutely fascinating chefs and some wonderful cuisine. And thanks for having me up here for a few minutes. Oh, hold on. Pardon me? Absolutely. www.com theblackfoodies.com T-H-E-B-L-A-C-K-F-O-O-D-I-E-S You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel The Black Foodies You can follow us on Twitter at The Black Foodies as well as on Instagram at The Black Foodies and thank you very much for having me up here for a few moments I'm going to hand it back over Scott And now on to today's speaker Ramona Thomas was here this morning to preach the gospel of chocolate and how his thought brought joy to her life and hopefully uh, to her customers at her shop. My, her shop is my chocolate soul, located just a Hershey's kiss away from here at 4442 North Broadway, right next to Target. Ramona actually walked here today from her shop and right after our meeting she's running back to it um, and she brought samples too. Uh, for us to taste. I, I first learned of Ramo Ramona's remarkable artistry when my friends and neighbors Alan and Marna Motu 
had me over for dinner and for, and for dessert. They gave me a sample of some of Ramona's chocolates. By the way, Alan, could you raise your hand because you're the finder of this person. Where's, where's Marna? She'll be here shortly. Okay. If she better, if she, if she doesn't come on time, she won't get dessert. So. Um, anyway, they, they had me sample some of Ramona's chocolates and I couldn't believe a shop that, that had such delicious shop stuff was located blocks away from our home in Uptown, uh, which is not exactly been a bastion of delicacies. Uh, the neighborhood is really changing. And Ellen and Marna told me that Ramona was as gracious as her chocolate was sublime. And, um, and I made uh, my business to go over there. And after I met Ramona, I felt like a casting director who just found another star for his play. And then asked her to come, come here and speak for us. And here she is today. <clears throat> a few words about Ramona. Her shop, My Chocolate Soul, grew out of her love of baking and sweets, especially chocolate. Although she had baked for many years, the initial idea for starting the business came after she took an introduction to French, French pastries at the French Pastry School in Chicago. And before transitioning to the dessert industry and founding the company, Ramona had a typical foodie background, like most of our speakers have this typical foodie background. Ramona's was, she was an entrepreneurial, had an entrepreneurial, she, well she had a career in education and philanthropy for 18 years. She holds a BS in applied mathematics from Brown University and a PhD in higher education from the University of Pennsylvania. Again, a typical food person. Um, but Dr. Thomas, as she is also known, said she felt so at home in a commercial kitchen that she began thinking about how she could spend more time than one doing what she really loved. So Ramona is a graduate with honors of a Cole Chocolats Professional School of Chocolate Arts Professional Chocolatier Program. She also completed very uh, Cal Calvo, is that Calvo? Um, Chocolate Academy's program for professional chocolatiers and continuing education courses at the French Pastry School and very Calvo Academy in Chicago. And uh, I, I had my own little experience with chocolate years ago. I was in Hawaii doing a story about Hawaiian food and I visited uh, a cacao bean plantation where the owner made his own chocolates and he sold his chocolates to places like Charlie Travers and other restaurants like that across the nation. And what a success, he followed his passion and he was growing co cocoa beans there. And I got to sample raw cocoa beans and the, anyway, that's a whole story in itself. But he, he was so thrilled with what he was doing and he said, and he appeared all over the nation on TV here, and, and he would say, the most important thing is to follow your passion, do what you love, and you're bound to be a success. So let us welcome, with a big Hershey's kiss, Uptown's Queen of Chocolate, Ramona Thomas. I want to thank Scott and the Culinary Historian of Chicago for having me today. It's really hard to follow that intro. Um, so I'm going to share with you my challenges for this morning. One, I've never been asked to speak for an hour. 
So this is going to be challenging for me. Usually it's 10, 15 minutes. You can kind of get through it and go. So you could, you could speak for up to an hour. Up to an hour. Oh, so I can cut it. Okay. In case well, you guys start nodding off or you know, just want to get straight to the chocolate. We, we might not let you cut it. Okay. Oh, wonderful. I'm really happy to be here and sort of share my story from sort of math to education to chocolate. Um, just, and it's hard to follow that intro um, just because it was so gracious and so wonderful. I actually wanted to meet the woman that Scott was talking about and I realized he was talking about me. So um, I'll do my best to live up to that introduction. I am Ramona Thomas and I am the Chief Suites Officer of My Chocolate Soul. I, um, in my life, never imagined I'd be running a business at 48 years old. I grew up in the Bronx. Um, always loved school and still consider myself a lifelong runner. And as I look back at my life, especially I'm sort of a couple of years shy of 50, you started thinking about um, just sort of the, the twists and turns of life. And I remember seeing on Facebook one of those, I don't know if it's called a meme or what, however, whatever it's called, but it says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? Because we all have these plans for our lives and there's nothing like they actually turn out. So when I was a kid, I loved school, I loved math and science, which made me kind of unique. Um, I grew up in a very average working class family, the youngest of four kids, um, who was really like smart off the charts, smart, um, to the point where I actually skipped the grade. Um, but I really loved learning, it was kind of like a sponge, and I still am that way, and as I tell you my story, hopefully you'll kind of see the, the lifelong learning in um, me. But as a kid, I really loved candy. Um, probably not unlike most children, but for me, what was special, I had, uh, one of my cousins, um, like my best friend, we spent every living moment we could together. Like, we were one of those, like, we would hide in the closet from our other cousins. We were just kind of like Siamese uh, twins. But one of the things I loved about being a kid with her was that going to the candy store was an adventure. So I remember the candy stores in our neighborhood, and in the 70s, you could get candy for a penny, right? We didn't, we didn't really focus on the healthy nutrition like I do now, but we could have a dollar and fill up like a brown bag full of candy, and then that's what we would do every weekend. And we would go home and like dump all the candy out and switch. And it's funny to come across some of the sort of novelty candy stores where you can find candy that you can't find today, like Chico Sticks and Six Sticks and uh, Charleston Chews and Marathon Man. Like I still remember what the candy store in my neighborhood looked like because that was such a special time. Um, so if anyone had told me as a kid that I'd want a candy store, I would think they were out of their mind. As a kid, I wanted to be um, a pediatrician. I loved, um, I loved helping people and the idea of helping people, especially children. Every time I went to the hospital and had a really great doctor, I thought, I want to be one of those people that make kids feel better. Um, and as I got older, in high school, I went on to a nursing program because nursing was going to help me, you know, at least get the basics before I went to medical school. And I remember in 10th grade, the high school that I went to, I, so I grew up in New York, I went to high school in Manhattan, Julie Richmond. Um, and it was a large 3,000 student high school and we had everything from kids who had been um, adjudicated to you know, AP kids, advanced placement kids, and then we also had kids whose parents worked at the UN. So we had the full gamut at our school. And, and I'll say that's one of the things I love about going up in New York was that I really experienced sort of full spectrum of life. So I got to see extreme poverty multi-generational poverty, and I got to see extreme wealth. 
Um, and for me as a kid, just kind of figuring out where on the spectrum I wanted my life to be. But back to 10th grade and Miss Mosley's class, you know you have some teachers you never forget. She was our nursing uh, teacher and I remember uh, we had a, a certified nursing assistance program so that when you graduate from high school you could be a, a licensed CNA and you could actually work in the hospital, work in nursing homes. So in 10th grade you kind of go through your training and I remember we were learning how to change bedpans and how to wash patients. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, like it was one of those really look at yourself in the mirror reality situations. Like, I can't do this. And I had to have a really honest conversation with myself. And I was like, okay, you think you want to go to medical school, but you don't even like sick people. <laughs> and I was like, you can't stand the smell of hospitals. And you can't watch anybody get a needle. Like I couldn't, I couldn't take a needle as a kid. I certainly couldn't watch anyone get a needle, like in a movie or anything. So I was like, you know, this medical career thing is really not going to work out for you. So I remember talking to my advisor who moved me into um, honors, and I ended up just doing sort of your advanced placement honors program. Went on to Brown to get a, a, a degree in applied mathematics. And I, um, so that was not a surprise. It actually would made her math. I was really good in math. I loved math um, to the point where I got 100 on the trigonometry exam, the, the state exam in New York. And I remember negotiating with my trigonometry teacher, she's like, Ramona, you know, I can't give you 100 because that would mean that you were perfect. I'm like, oh, Miss Natalie, I got 100 on the state exam. I think that is a sign of perfection. You can't give me a 99. And so she's like, well, I've never done that before. I'm like, it's okay to do it the first time. So I actually, you know, went down in history, like getting 100 on the state exam and 100 on the, uh, my report card. Ended up going to Brown, and sort of that was the sort of next step in reality for me. Um, I should tell you that in going to college, I wasn't really sure where I was going to go. I really loved sports, and I thought I would major in math and become a statistician because I wanted to work for like the NBA. I wanted to be, or NBC, I wanted to be on site in the trucks pulling up like the statistics for Major League Baseball games and NBA games. And, um, and I remembered looking at big sports schools, and I had a mentor who said, you know, you're too smart to go to like a sports school. You should go to Harvard. I'm like, I think Harvard would be a little too stuffy for me. I need something that's a little more like laid back that really matches my personality. And she introduced me to a young man who had just graduated from Brown. And I remember we were meeting at Windows on the World, which was One World Trade uh, Center, and we were at the top. And I remember he was telling me the story when she wasn't around. She went to make a phone call or something like that, and he had told me that he had gotten into Brown and Harvard. They had never told his family, that, his parents, that he got into Harvard because he really wants to go to Brown. And I thought, wow, he lied to his parents. This Brown University must be a really special place. And from then on, it became sort of my top choice. And so, in deciding where to go to college, visited Brown, got into Yale, got into other Ivy League schools, but Brown was sort of the, the sealer for me. And as I look back on my life a couple years ago, um, actually went back to my 25th reunion. It was one of those experiences where you come back and you realize how much college really shaped you in a way that you hadn't experienced. And I realized how much my brown peers were really my family. The funny thing about going back was, and was like, Ramona, you want this chocolate? You want this? You are math and you are five math, one of six people who graduated in our class of about 1,300. 
with a degree in applied math, and so you now make chocolate? How did that come about? I'm like, I know, right? And, and I'm talking to people who write, like, one of my classmates had been appointed by President Obama to sit on the trustee of the World Bank. Another had just been appointed a judge. One is now, like, a dean of the Graduate School of Education at Berkeley, and then here's me who runs the chocolate shop here in Chicago. Um, so, um, loved school, major in math, went on to get a PhD in education um, because I loved learning and I wanted other kids who looked like me, who grew up in New York, to have the experience that I had. And I realized, even in high school, because I went to this school that had this huge range of you know, um, kids who had been in and out of jail or in our dropping out of school, to kids who went on to Ivy League schools, um, but there were kids who were kind of in the middle, who weren't low, who weren't high, who didn't necessarily get the attention of educators, but who could have done well in college. And so that became my passion. I went on to get a PhD in education um, after working in corporate America and realizing that was not a good fit for me, that I didn't have sort of skill um, and gravitas to really grow on the corporate ladder. Went and got a PhD and loved it. Loved research, fell in love with evaluation. Um, fell in love with programs that you know, really help kids and giving kids um, more opportunity. I kind of stumbled into philanthropy. Um, I won't bring you all the details, but I stumbled into philanthropy and really loved it. Um, you always heard about foundations growing up, but it's kind of this black curtain industry. Like, unless you have a connection, you get a grant, or you work with a foundation, it's really kind of hard to know what happens behind the doors of foundations. Um, and what I really loved was the idea of giving away money to help nonprofits. That for me was everything. I mean, I happened to do it in education because I really cared about education and I cared about teachers and I cared about administrators and I cared about organizations that cared about teachers and organizations. And so for me, I lived sort of my training job for many years. One of them was actually here. Um, so I've lived in Chicago for 15 years, two times. Uh, this is sort of my second tour. The first one I actually worked for the Spencer Foundation here in Chicago in the late 90s. And that Spencer funds research and education. And that was one of my sort of dream jobs. And that I got to work with amazing leaders um, who really cared about education as an industry. And for me, it was really transformative and just really understanding leadership and how that transforms or transcends um, whatever industry you're in. So I, I'm working my dream job, I'm traveling around the world, I've traveled to five continents. Um, the only two I've been to are Antarctica and Asia, which I'm, it's still my bucket list before 50, if I can ever get out of the chocolate shop. Um, and so I need to thank you, Scott, for that too, because I'm always there. Um, so I'm living my dream job, I'm really loving what I do. Uh, for years I've always baked from scratch. As I got older, I became very health conscious, uh, thanks to my mother. Who was the one who actually got me going to the gym and working out and really paying attention to sort of how I live my life and sort of you take care of your body now, it'll take care of you later. Some of you are probably learning uh, testimonies of that. And um, so I've been baking from scratch mostly because I just got frustrated with a lot of the dessert labels. Like I got tired of going to the grocery store looking for like a pound cake for dinner um, and looking at all the ingredients and not saying basic stuff like butter, sugar, eggs, flour. And um, again, never thought about running a business, but it was one of those, like, I was the one who was always bringing sweets to work. So anytime I had a meeting, I was the one who would bring a cake or bring a basket of brownies or cookies or things like that. And have been doing that from grad school in, in the early 90s. 
And it wasn't until I was Paris. So when I turned 30 in 2000, one of the promises I made to myself, if I was able, that every year I traveled to a place that I've never been. Um, and so for 17 years, I did that. And um, really just, I, I, again, love learning. So being able to go to different cultures, learn about the food, and, and often I traveled by myself. It was one of those, like, just kind of explore. And I also used the time for reflection. Um, and I usually would go in the winter. Uh, just, it was around my birthday, and it was, you know, a great time to just sort of reflect. And I took a trip to Paris in 2008 and was really nervous about going to Paris because um, I don't speak French. Didn't take French in school, I took Spanish. And had, you know, you hear a lot of negative things about French people. And so I, I thought, okay, this doesn't work out. Like, if you can't navigate your bonjours and, you know, your hellos and how to um, get around the city, I'll just stay in a hotel and order room service. While I was there, I was on the quest to find, like, the best croissant in Paris. So every morning I would get up early and I would go to different participants. And as I was exploring the city, one of the things that really stood out for me was watching um, shop owners, you know, clean up and get ready for the day. And I just thought, you know, we don't see a lot of that in big cities anymore, at least not in the neighborhoods where I live. And I really just, something about that really resonated with me, that we still had family-owned businesses where the, the family was upstairs and the business was downstairs or it was a bakery or a produce market. Um, and I just, something about that resonated with me so much that it just really kind of stayed in my spirit. Again, I had no idea that I would be one of those people who would be a local um, shop owner. But, so I, uh, every morning, find the best croissant on my last day, uh, just brought back a bunch of stuff that I just really loved. And about a year and a half later, I thought, instead of buying croissants, I'm going to be my And I took a class at the French pastry school, and I'd never been in a commercial kitchen. I baked for years, um, but I'd never been in a commercial kitchen. I didn't know how to work anything. I didn't know how to work the outlets, the, you know, the blenders, the mixers, anything. But something about my spirit felt really at home. And, I don't know if you've ever walked into a place or met a person where just something totally clicked. And the chef who I, who I took the course with, Chef Bob, he and his wife actually run two businesses here in Chicago. So I don't know if any, any of you have ever been to Lovely Bake Shop in River Park or Bacon and Eggs um, on Lincoln Avenue, but they run those two establishments. And he was amazing and incredibly uh, graceful and patient and you take these classes, and have any of you ever taken like a culinary class? Well, culinary historians in Chicago, I'm sure you have. Um, but for me, it was the first time, and what I loved about the class, besides the actual creation, like I love baking, I love mixing doughs, and I love watching the ingredients change. I still love that even in making chocolate. So we're starting with different ingredients, and as you mix them, just sort of see what's evolving. The other thing I really loved about the class is that you just bring all these goodies home. I'm single, I didn't have anybody to bring them home to, so one of my best friends, I stopped at her and her husband's house on the way, and she just was amazed. She's like, oh my gosh, you made all of this, and we had like brioche and croissants, and we had things that I don't even remember, but they were all French pastries. And I just remember the excitement like in their eyes, and just how like happy we were, just sort of going through the different pastries and eating. And I thought, you know, I really want to be able to do this more. Like, 
bring joy to people's faces. And I know how I am when I get that really great dessert that comes out of the kitchen that's too pretty to eat that you're sharing with the person that you're having dinner with. And I've never thought about um, culinary as an industry or a profession, but always had a great appreciation for chefs who not only create, but who bring joy, who make people happy. And that class really stayed with me. I remember it was spring of 2009. I thought, you should open a bakery. You want to bake. You could do this. You have some really great recipes. But you know, before you make a week, sit down and do all the things that business people tell you to do. I'm not really a business person, but I have a lot of friends who work in business. So sit down and work on your business, your business plan. Think about what your brand is going to be. How are you going to market your business? So I spent the summer doing that and doing really fun stuff like taking shoe preparation classes and trying to figure out what a business in Chicago would look like. Um, you know, as Dino said earlier, we are in, I don't know that I would call Chicago the second um, best culinary city um, in, in the country. We, I, I think Chicago might be number one. Um, we're certainly on the map in America as you know, one of the top culinary cities in the world, certainly in the country. And so the idea of starting a food business in Chicago um, was really daunting. But I thought, you know, there's a gap in the industry. As much as I love sweets and as much as I love candy and big goods, there isn't an all-natural, clean-label dessert company out there. Um, even your high-end, um, I don't know how many people would talk about the high-end anymore, but even your sort of high-end chocolate companies still use corn syrup, still use high-fructose corn syrup, still use artificial coloring, still use ingredients that are long-term harmful um, to preserve the product, to extend shelf life. And I thought, you know, there has to be a way to make really great chocolate, but make chocolate beyond what you see at Whole Foods, right? Because there's the bean bar, you have the trade chocolate. There's a lot of all-natural chocolate out there, but honestly, it gets boring. And that's what happened to me. I got tired of looking at labels and eating dark chocolate bars every day, or eating dark chocolate bars with almonds. And every time I would look at that turtle label and see corn cycles come out, you know, make believe and just eat it one time or not. And I thought you shouldn't have to make the choice between, you know, corn syrup and coloring and really great confections. And so how do I create a business where there's a range, right? You have your sort of plain chocolate bars that you can get at Whole Foods for people who want that. But then if you really love truffles or you really love bonbons or you really love turtles or toffee or you know, layered um, confections that you could still have those and know what goes in the product. And that became my challenge, that became my goal. So as I was building the business, um, I was still working full time. I was based here working for a venture philanthropy firm that was investing in educational entrepreneurs. Probably my second dream job because I got to invest in entrepreneurs who were um, investing in underserved communities. They were creating schools and creating educational opportunities for kids who didn't have any other option um, besides their local, local forming public school. I was traveling around the country um, a lot, which my mother didn't like. But for me, it was great because I, it was fuel for me to meet people that you don't read about, um, that don't make the money in the news, who are making tremendous sacrifices for the next generation of kids. So as I'm working my business, I'm telling my friends, you know, I'm going to open a bakery. And uh, one friend was like, oh, you should look into these shared kitchens. They're really great incubators for food businesses. I had no idea 
um, about licensing and how you go about establishing a business or getting a license in the city of Chicago. And uh, my first shared kitchen uh, was actually in Logan Square, so in Bucktown. So it was right up the street, it was perfect. And I remember the woman who ran the kitchen was really wonderful at uh, just sort of giving me the lay of the land of the city. Um, unfortunately, she had a very uh, bitter relationship with City Hall, so her warnings were really good to sort of toughen me and prepare me. Uh, fortunately for me, I had really wonderful relationships with, with City Hall, so just sort of navigating that process um, was, was, was okay. Um, in the interim, I think, okay, you can't just do big things. Like, you really love chocolate, why don't you do chocolate? So I take my first chocolate class um, at the Barry Callow uh, School here in Chicago. It's right on Chicago Avenue, what used to be, it's not too much in my What's the other great building that they used to do, the catalog? The old Montgomery Ward building. So um, Barry Calvo, uh, I go and take the class, and I remember my chef was a French chef who the very first day is teaching us about the history of chocolate and how the mind saw chocolate and how it started as their drink and they thought it was food from the gods and um, how you know, the growth of the chocolate industry and how Europe played such an important role um, in the way that we eat chocolate today. And one of the things I remembered was that he's like, you know, a lot of pastry chefs really don't like working in chocolate because it's very temperamental and you need the right environment. If you're working in a, a kitchen and it's too hot, you know, your confections are going to become messed up. And, you know, it's like a lot of pastry chefs just don't like it. They'd rather stay with pastry. And I didn't really get it, you know, at first. I just kind of like, how could you not like working in chocolate? It's amazing. Um, so the first day or two, he's like, a lot of you won't like it either. And you know, some of you will go back to your pastry, some of you will decide that you don't want to do this at all. And the first day or two is not very exciting. You're learning about history, you're seeing you know, pictures of cacao farms, and you're learning about the trade in which most of the um, cacao is grown in, in West Africa, and harvested in West Africa, and other parts of, um, of the world that we want. So 20 degrees north and south of the equator is where most of the cacao is grown, and so you're learning about the different um, countries and which is grown and how it's processed and you're thinking, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I'm not really sure, maybe he's right, maybe I'm not really cut up for this. And by the second day, you're making your recipes and you're um, learning about tempering and you know, all these terms that you've heard and um, you're starting to see the progress, right? Your truffle ganaches and what's setting, what's not setting and all the sort of nitty-gritty work that I do every day and piping truffles and figuring out molds and all that. And then by the third day, you're tasting, right? And all the joy of you know, chocolate, the things we love about chocolate, it's coming back to, to me like, wow, you could really do this. And at the end of the course, I thought, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm just going to go for the plunge. And I remember taking a class in December. I was still working. And in January, I left my job. And people thought I was out of my mind. Like, all the people I worked with for many years in education really thought that I was either going through a crisis or I really just kind of gone bonkers. Like, this, you know, overachiever, PhD, math person is going to now do what? She's leaving the industry to go make chocolate to start a bakery. And I remember the young woman who I worked with at our organization. Um, and she's kind of the little sister I'm a mentor of her. She was my first employee, actually, at my chocolate school. 
Um, I just remember she was devastated, and she was calling people like, you need to pray for us because we're almost leaving. We need to get her back. And I remember one of my board members calling me and said, are you, are you sure you, know, you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, it's time for change. Um, and what people didn't know was that at that point in my life, I spent so much time developing one side of my brain with and analyzing and writing and doing sort of the smart stuff that I felt like I never really spent a lot of time cultivating the creative side of my brain. Um, and I was one of those kids who couldn't color, who couldn't sing. I played a clarinet in middle school, but I tried a lot of different things, wasn't really good at sports. Um, so I didn't really know what my artistic talent was. In my 30s, I started learning how to sew and art as a seamstress, be this seamstress. And I thought, maybe sewing's your thing. You know, like I've been trying different things to figure out what was my niche. Um, and what was special about food is that growing up in my family, a really big family, we spent a lot of time around the kitchen table. That was how we were socialized, and that was how you know our family history was passed down. Just learning about my great grandparents and great grand uncles and aunts. Um, you know, a lot of things happen in our family kitchen and our kitchen table. You know, preparing for holidays and weddings and things like that, that became how, at least in my family, women were socialized. And not the socialized to be a wife or be a mother and stay in the kitchen, but just sort of socialized as learning how to be a woman. Like we learned about, you know, respect and grace and, you know, the challenges of being in a relationship. Like all the things that women talk about with other women, um, multi-generational, that's what happened in our family kitchen. So the kitchen became a very special place. Me. And so when I thought about running a food business, and um, you know, it, it was one of those things that I just knew in my heart of hearts. And I remember the week that I left, I had been working a lot, I had been traveling a lot, and I had been exhausted. Um, and it's funny to talk about that kind of exhaustion versus the exhaustion I have now, and I'll share that with you a little later. Um, but I remember that week feeling this relief. And, and knowing inside that I made like, the right decision. I had no idea what the rest of my life would look like, you know, over the next seven or eight years. But I knew I made the right decision, so much so that it was the first time I'd watched Jay Leno in a really long time, because it was the first time I wasn't working at 10.30 at night. And I remember being in my kitchen experimenting with, we had our chocolate recipe book, and I was you know, doing chocolate tastings and trying different chocolate brands. And I remember creating like, a truffle recipe. And so the truffle recipe is actually what I brought to sample today. Um, it was the very first truffle that I created for the business. And I remember this sort of peace in my life. And um, that particular truffle we do carry in our shop, it's our classic dark truffle. It actually goes in every box that we pack. Um, when we have an online store, so Every store, every box that we pack, that truffle goes in. One because it's great; um, people really love it. Um, but also because it's just really special to me. It really marks for me the beginning uh, of the business. So I I start this business. I don't have any idea of um, what I'm doing. I mean, honestly, I know I love chocolate. I know I'm going to be a clean label, all natural business. Um, but I'm trying to figure out all the things that business people tell you. You know, what's your brand? How are you going to stand out from others? And I thought, you're just going to be good. We're just going to be better. No, that's not enough. You have to say how you're different from the dad, or how you're different from being or how you're different from Moves, or uh, Catherine, or, you know, or Killings, or, you know, any other chocolate businesses here. Um, 
And I really didn't know. I just knew we were going to be clean label. We weren't going to use any crappy ingredients. We were going to use fine chocolate. It was going to taste great. And everybody was going to love it. And we were going to be big overnight. <laughs> Not quite the story that's playing out eight years later. Um, but what I did realize was that um, an investment of time goes a long way. So I really spent a lot of time on recipes. And the challenge for me coming out of the culinary schools and the French pastry school and the chocolate academy was that a lot of chefs still use things that, you know, they, they call them natural, what we call them, glucose syrup and, you know, uh, coloring because that's one of the uh, industry trends uh, having really beautiful colored chocolates, you know, that are works of art, you know, that are hand painted. Um, all things that I never wanted to use. Um, for me, it was kind of like chocolate's beautiful all on its own. It, come in, it comes in its own shade of brown. Why do we need yellow or just blue? Um, so, really, sort of taking a stand, even as I was building the business, of what we were and what not do. Um, as I was building the business, I knew really early on that having an online presence would be important because we didn't have a brick and mortar store. I worked out of a shared kitchen for five and a half years. And so when Scott talked about having a shop in Uptown, um, that was never part of the plan. I had no idea where it would be in the city. It took us two years to find this space in Uptown. We looked everywhere. And initially when I was building the business, it was going to be you know, mail order, people would order online, we would focus on corporate and we would do events. Volume was going to be important to me, not because I didn't want retail, but because I just didn't understand retail. Um, I know what I'm like as a consumer, but um, retail was changing. People were shopping more online, you can get anything through Amazon. Um, so having a storefront, although it was reminiscent of my trip to Paris, and the idea of being that local, small business, I loved that idea. I just didn't know what community in Chicago would, would make that work or where that could work well for me. And so as we were looking for space, it was really all about production. Whatever would be a great space where we could have chocolate factories. So it was going to be Ramona in a chocolate factory, kind of like Willy Wonka or Charlie in a chocolate factory. We were just going to make a lot of chocolate and sell a lot of chocolate to you know, other large businesses, to uh, people who would shop online. And um, one of the things I was doing as I was building my business was figuring out different networks. Because they tell you all these things, you got a network, you got a market, you got to do all these things. And so I kind of sort of found myself weaving in and out of different networking groups, kind of like dating. They're trying to find which group was the right group to help you at different stages of your business. And, you know, for me, I'm still a chocolatier at heart. I really am, even in running my business. I love making chocolate. It's what I really do. Figuring out how to run all the other aspects of the business, it comes in, in ebbs and flows. There are times where I'm really good at marketing, and there are times where I just hate it. Um, it's the same with accounting, it's the same with facilities, it's the same with anything else. And the, the ones who are consistent has been the love of chocolate and being consistent in our product and um, what we sell. But in one of my sort of networking uh, dating situations, I was working with a coach who was helping me with sales strategies. And you know, again, because I'm a lifelong learner, there are all these things I really don't know. So I have to work with people and learn from other people who are expert at this. I meet a, a woman who's now one of my closest friends who also happened to be a commercial receiver. And just sort of, I'm going to just share just my sort of challenges in running a business because there are things that I never think about as a consumer. I 
And I think there are things that most people don't think about until you actually in it and you are in a business. But I'm thinking, you know, at some point I'm going to need my own space because sharing the kitchen is a drag. Like you, you're bringing all your stuff every time or you're renting shared space. People aren't as clean as I am. I'm kind of borderline OCD. So anytime I see anything on the table after somebody else's work, you know, it freaks me out. Or you look at cake pans or sheet pans that are, you know, not clean. Like, so the whole shared kitchen aspect um, was great because you don't have the resources to have your own brick and mortar. So, you know, economically it's great because you're not taking the quantity and you're trying to figure out is there really a demand for what you, you want to build. Um, but at the same time, um, it was awful. Like, I just, I really hated it. And I worked at a three shared kitchen in five and a half years. The first one I shared with you, Morgan Square, closed after a year. Um, and then I started trekking out to the south side to work in a kitchen that was doing catering for the University of Chicago. Didn't have um, the right climate for chocolate, so no AC, couldn't control the climate, so I would go at night because it was cooler. Um, not again, sort of the safest thing to do. Um, and then they uh, had issues with their landlord and Mr. Pilsen, and then I ended up at the third kitchen, uh, Kitchen Chicago, which I loved. They did have a chocolate room, like it, it was really um, conducive to sort of grow into business. Um, but as I meet Kimberlyn, my broker, a really good friend, and I'm like, you're a broker? That's great. I run a chocolate business, I'm going to be looking for space. And she immediately fired off all these questions. What's square footage? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I just need a space. I, well, how big? I don't know. What neighborhood? I don't know. Um, what zoning? I'm like, zoning? I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, okay, slow down, slow down. I just need a space. And so over time, I was like, okay, clearly I'm not ready because you're asking me questions that I can't answer. That process became a two-year process. And what was you know really great about working with Kimberlyn was that I didn't know anything, and she knew everything about commercial real estate and how to negotiate these and how to pick the right employee. Because I'm like, I just need to say, she's like, but Ramon, you have to do about this. This is like a long-term relationship because you may find the right space at the right price, but then the landlord is a jerk. Do you want to enter a five-year relationship with a jerk? What if your peak goes out or your this goes out or your that goes out? And I'm like, okay. So we, we go through two years of looking for a space in neighborhoods that didn't know existed in Chicago. Um, and it was one of the most um, terrifying, exhilarating experiences because I got to learn about I got to see different neighborhoods that I didn't know exist. I got a chance to think about creatively what our space would look like. It was miserable because you're at the long or at the you know you're literally at the whim of other people who you think want to rent their space so they can make some money, but not necessarily so. Um, and I remember we were in three relationships, uh, lease negotiations that all fell through. Mm-hmm. One was a guy who bought a warehouse that had a cafeteria. Perfect. And had all the kitchen equipment, everything. This is going to be my chocolate factory. We waited for maybe six months. He had issues taking uh, ownership of the building. Um, and he's like, don't worry, we're going to work it out. The zoning was great. Like, all the things that, you know, Kimberlyn initially asked me about zoning, all that stuff was great. Um, that didn't work out. Then our second space was near the new 606. Anyone knows the 606? It was new at the time. It was near where I lived in Bucktown. And we thought, 
this is great. We're going to have a three Tesla right here in the bike path. People are going to want cupcakes and chocolates and between their bike rides and um, sign the lease with the owner. Um, the day I mailed the lease back, I remember going to City Hall. I spent a lot of time in City Hall. And um, my brother called me and was like, Ramona, can you sit down? I'm like, no, I'm right outside City Hall. And she's like, well, the owner got his property tax increase and he wants to go home the room. I'm like, but we spent six weeks. I pay my order to like, go through this lease. We, you know, really want to work with an, an, an owner who wants to go up on the rent and you just sent back the lease that you spent six weeks negotiating. And I said, don't worry, well, the space just hasn't found us. All of this time, I'm really optimistic. Within 24 hours, she calls me back to space in that town. And um, as Scott mentioned, I'm um, right next door to Weight Watchers. He mentioned two doors down. <laughs> but we are right next door to Weight Watchers, which most people um, think is sort of the coolest joke. Um, but what, long story short, we, uh, my broker has uh, lunch with Jackie Holson. Um, Holson developed the property, and she said, you know, we still have a few spaces that are not rented. Would your client be interested? And she said, like, Mama, do you want to be in uptown? I'm like, okay. She's like, why don't you just drive around the neighborhood and go see? And I remember driving around, and it reminded me of a neighborhood in the Bronx where we used to shop, where there used to be a lot of stores, and it was an area where people would go and shop and you could eat. Um, and there were L tracks, there were elevated tracks before they tore them down and, and laid on the ground. And it reminded me so much of a neighborhood called Third Avenue. Um, where I, I didn't grow up in the neighborhood, but we used to go as a kid on the weekends and it used to be crowded. And I could see remnants of that in uptown. And I said, yeah, let's be in uptown. And, and I was so excited. I didn't know anything about the neighborhood except the Green Mill. Um, because that was the only time I'd ever really come to uptown. So as I, you know, learned about the community and started talking to the chamber and meeting people, I became really excited. Um, but what was more excited was just how the community really embraced me. Um, before we opened the chamber and Alderman Kaplan and Alderman Austin, we hadn't even opened the store. And Alderman Austin was like, okay, your next one has to be in Edward. I was like, well, let's get through the first one first before we think about you know, store number two. But the reception here was so warm and it was so welcoming. It felt right. And I remember saying to Kimberlyn, all of those other stalled or failed negotiations were against us to hear. Like, even though it didn't seem like it at the time, I wasn't meant to be in Bucktown or the South Loop or any of the other neighborhoods. I was meant to be here in Uptown. And she's like, oh, no, we couldn't. We couldn't have asked for a better space. And I remember I was driving my architect around because, you know, before she signed, I signed a lease, she's like, we have to make sure we can get zoned, and you have to make sure you could do this, and that you could do your production, and that if you need black iron and all these, like, technical terms, you know, you need to have an engineer come out. Like, so I remember when we brought my architect to see the space. Her name's Belinda, amazing um, commercial architect. I said, Belinda, this is really it. She's like, I'm on your right. She looked at the space. She said, I can totally see it. Because we had already built the space, or uh, they had already like, made architectural designs before we even found the space. She spent time. She's like, Ramona, what do you want it to feel like? I said, I want people to feel like they're walking in my kitchen. Because, again, my family kitchen had such a profound impact on me in terms of warmth and hospitality. I wanted everyone who walked into my chocolate soul to feel that, to feel 
at home to smell chocolate, to smell caramel, to smell our caravan cakes, and to feel a sense of warmth and welcoming. And so when she looked at the space and we worked on the space, and even today, almost two years later, when people walk in and people say that, I always say, Belinda, you got it. Like she knew exactly what I wanted and we built it out with no the kitchen because transparency is really important to me. How many of you have been fresh to So our, we have an open kitchen. People can watch us make chocolate. Um, and that was really important for me in terms of transparency um, and in terms of warmth and, and warmth that people feel in lockdown. So uh, fast forward, we build a shop. We're you know, doing chocolate. Um, I'm continuing to learn about the industry. Every year I continue to take a class with a master chef. Um, most are from France. Uh, my last one was with a chef from Mexico City. Probably the first one who uh, philosophically is kind of aligned with me. Doesn't use a lot of color, doesn't use a lot of ingredients, not really trying to extend shelf life, really more, uh, more natural. And um, what's nice for me about the continuing education part is because the gourmet chocolate industry is really growing. Um, it's a $4 billion industry, retail alone. People are spending $4 billion on the farming chocolate. Not your Hershey's that you get from Target, or your M&M's that you get from the movie theater, but your Vogue's, your My Chocolate Soul, your Cabernet, Confessions, things that your mind holds foods. And what research is showing is that um, while chocolate retail sales in the U.S. are $22 billion alone, um, people are really paying for the experience. So people really want to experience chocolate. Um, rather than just, I want to eat a candy bar, I really want to enjoy your flavor. I want to know where the chocolate comes from. I want to know the percentage cacao. Like that has become an important trend in the industry. And what you're seeing is a lot of artists and chocolatiers pop up. Um, not necessarily, not only in Chicago, but around the country. You're seeing more people um, get into chocolate because it really is a growth industry. And honestly, because people like you are demanding um, more options beyond the fair trade chocolate bar Whole Foods. People want more confections. People want more color. They want more artistry. Um, and what research is showing is that projections are that the industry will continue to grow through 2025. Um, but people ask me, hey, Mama, isn't there going to be a chocolate shortage? You know, I read that we're going to be running out of chocolate soon. Um, and so there is a huge concern in the industry about farming practices. So um, what's happening in other countries is that as there are more opportunities for young people um, and or for farmers, um, they're not able to get younger people to want to take over the family business or farming. So kind of like here, if you rewind back when we were really big in agriculture before, Monsanto and other, the other big corporations sort of took over a lot of sort of general farming, you had a lot of family-owned farms. And what's happening with cacao is that you have a lot of people who don't necessarily want to stay in the industry. Um, and I can understand why, it's really hard work. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to spend some time on a family-owned farm in Costa Rica. And it's one thing to watch a video of people harvesting cacao, it's another to actually take the knife and cut it from the tree and, you know, break open the, the cacao pod and pull out all the seeds and do all the manual labor that's required, doing all the roasting and the fermenting. 
Um, it's not, it's really not easy work. And a lot of farmers, particularly from Africa, um, but in other parts of the world, they don't even know what the finished product looks like. They just know that around the world there is a demand for something they grow. Um, many of them, and I can send you links, or if you haven't seen them, but there are links of farmers who are trying chocolate for the first time as adults. Like they're like, so this is what comes out of this. Um, and so there are definitely some changes in the industry. One of the things I love about working with Barry Calvo, which is one of the largest uh, chocolate manufacturers in the world, um, there are a couple of things I love about Calvo. One, it's an old company that's been around for a really long time. Um, two, the product really is amazing. Um, it really, I mean, they've really harvested a hundred, over a hundred years of knowledge and how to take uh, cacao from around the world and really preserve um, the natural flavor of the cacao bean. So cacao grown in Ecuador or Venezuela or Madagascar, um, really being able to maintain the notes, the undertones of the cacao, so if it's fruity or nutty or sweet, um, depending on the environment in which it's grown, they've done a really great job at preserving that. Um, but one of the other things I really love about the company is that they're really paying attention to food sustainable farming. So, um, and I don't know how much you know about research that's coming out about you know, child seed slave labor in uh, West Africa and other countries, or concerns about the actual um, farming practices of cacao. And they're really paying attention to that in terms of the labor that's used, making sure that it's not children, but also working with farmers to farm smarter um, so that their farms can be sustainable. And um, I love that about the company because they're one of the few, honestly, um, one of the few large global companies that are paying attention to it. There are others who are just kind of turning, like, don't tell us we don't know that they're using kids or that they're using you know, slaves. Um, or you know, coercing um, poor people to harvest the cacao. So I love that Barry Calvo is is doing that, and so um, that is the chocolate that I use. Um, the other thing I love about the company is they do the most popular in the world. So in our shop, we carry mostly Belgian chocolate, um, but we do also make confections with chocolate from Madagascar and Tanzania and Peru. Um, I'm trying to think of Mexico. I'm trying to think of what I have in stock right now. Um, but I do try to uh, use at least eight to ten uh, different dark chocolates. And I'm really happy to be able to source that in one company. So let me see where I am on time, because I feel like I've been talking for a really long time. And if you don't mind, then just look at my cheat sheet and make sure that I covered everything that we promised I would talk about in terms of my, my background, industry trends, um, why artists and chocolate is so important to the industry. Um, my journey as a, as a chocolatier has been um, an incredibly rewarding one. And the thing that I love, the things, because there isn't really one thing that I love most about chocolate, there are a couple of things. One, it just tastes really good. Uh, it really does. I mean, I just, I love chocolate. I love making chocolate. I love the process of chocolate. Um, but the, the thing that I probably love most is our tagline is spreading joy through chocolate. And I think what I love most about my business is um, working with people and seeing people's reactions to our products or getting emails or texts or Facebook posts or we even have good Yelp reviews, uh, which is you know hard to do. But just 
knowing how much people enjoy our product or when they give our product as a gift. You know, they say, oh, my mom really loved it or, you know, we took it to a dinner party and everybody raved and I was like the most favorite dinner guest. Like, we get to help you be like really great dinner guests and um, give really good gifts. I love doing that. And for me, it's really about the 10 seconds or 15 seconds that you're eating our chocolate and you're kind of in a different world or in a different space. Um, that I get to bring that to your life every day is really important. I have customers who come to the store like, Ramona, I have a really bad day, I need chocolate. I'm like, okay, what can I get for you today? <laughs> or my boss is going to be in and speak, or I'm starting a new job, or I'm moving, or I'm new to the neighborhood. Like, whatever the occasion, chocolate is the answer. I really, <laughs> do, no, I really believe that. Bad day chocolate, good day chocolate, birthday chocolate, really sad chocolate. Um, like anything, there, there's always a reason to get chocolate. And when I tell people my business and corporate clients, and I've worked with, you know, Bank of America, PNC Bank, um, a lot of banks. Um, we've done work with Facebook, and um, we're doing chocolates for the Lyric Opera House this year. We're really excited about that. I was a, a former season ticket holder for Lyric, so to be able to not even do that now, because I'm in shop all the time, I'm in chocolate. But, so they really chocolates for the lyric is such a huge um, honor for me. So we have a really nice sort of celebrity client list. But even with our you know, celebrity clients and business clients, I love when they come back and say, Ramona, our staff love the gifts. Or, you know, uh, we I recently did a sweets table for the foundation and to say, you know, everyone worried about it. That again, for those 10 seconds or 15 seconds that people are eating our products that we bring joy or happiness or glee or euphoria, whatever it is, depending on what you're eating, um, means a lot to me. We live in a time where um, people are struggling and people are in pain and people are suffering and people are figuring out their way. And if for 10 or 15 seconds you can enjoy a piece of chocolate and not have to think about it, or that it gives you clear direction, or that it brings you peace, or just makes you feel good, that for me is everything in my own business. Um, I will say, as a business owner, I'm still sort of learning on the fly. Um, I'm really fortunate and thankful to have great supporters um, and a really great network of people who kind of look out for me. You know, my accountant keeps me out of jail. Um, <laughs> he really does. Um, you know, people who help me with marketing. And recently, we were featured in Black in the Closet, and I remember. The interviewer asked me, you know, about marketing. I'm like, you know, our customers market better than I ever could. You guys really do. Um, and actually, I'm looking at the couple who is really responsible for me being here, for sharing the chocolates with Scott, who then came out to me. And that's kind of how my life has been, um, sort of the, the, the chain, the sort of human link. Um, and that's one of the things I realized about my business, too, is that, um, we're all connected at something. I think for me, chocolate is what connects me to other people. But through people in this room, I'm connected to other people through chocolate. And so, um, fortunately, I've you know met people who help me. And I told the interview for the article, I said, you know, our customers are the best marketers and advertisers ever because most of our click traffic still and most of our retail stores still comes from our mouth. It really does because your recommendation is much better than any ad, any Facebook post, post, any Instagram, anything we could put in any 
newspaper. You saying her chocolates are amazing, you try them, and you try them and feel the same way, then we have to test them. So, um, so what's next for my chocolate soul? We're gearing up for the holiday season. This is a time where people remember people and give gifts. Um, where people gather for holidays, where people want to thank their clients for support throughout the year, and we do all of those things. We do client gifts, we do events and catering, we do your regular, you know, one-off chocolate boxes, gift towers, so we're working on that. Um, I was recently featured on CBS um, this week. I don't know if anybody see it. I'll have to get you the whole thing. So uh, I was recently featured on the Small Business Spotlight on CBS News. So it aired nationally on Thursday, and it was really awesome. I am, again, I, I was really excited. I'm always excited about talking about chocolate and talking about my chocolate soul. But to be able to sit you know, in the studio, be on camera, to have it seen around the country, you know, it's all over the internet, is really fun. And all the, the, I won't spoil it for those of you that are going to watch it for the two and a half minutes, but the whole purpose of the spotlight was encouraging other businesses and just for my journey, like how do you make the leap from that education to chocolate, and then how do you encourage other business owners, particularly women, to keep going when it's really hard. So I, um, I really loved it, and I remember uh, being in the studio and the producer was like, you're natural. I said, well, I know the chocolate thing doesn't work out. This might be sort of the next thing, being on TV. But no, but we want the chocolate thing to work out. So we are we're really focusing on growth. Um, and for me, that means uh, more corporate clients, uh, doing more events and catering. That's what I love to do. Um, but again, I think because of my family history, because we used to entertain a lot, I love doing events and catering. I love doing events and catering. We do a lot of custom stuff, and I love working with individuals to create something that really matches their personality or their event or their uh, company. So we do a lot of that. The retail store is moving along. We're getting some help on our storefront window because uh, one out of every two people who walk into the store say, I walk by all the time and I didn't know you were here. I'm like, I know, I know. So we're working on getting some help with that uh, so that we can get some you know, really nice code feel so that we can really sing that next time we watch And um, you know, we're gonna just keep making chocolate, keep making great chocolate, and just keep spreading more good chocolate. So I'm Ramona Thomas, and I'm the Chief Seeds Officer of my chocolate store. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that I stock, I think, eight kinds of chocolates. So if you're making truffles or you're making some brownies or something, is is a particular recipe composed of multiple kinds of dark chocolate? Because all we know is we see dark on it and we don't know anything beyond that. That's a really great question. It doesn't change all the time, the, the, the combination for a particular thing you make. So that's a great combination. I mean, a great question. So the answer is yes. I do use different chocolates for different products. And I'll give you mentions for all these. <coughs> Excuse me. So for our brownies, um, I use a 70% and I use a 55% in different proportions. Um, so one of the things I learned from the master chefs that I took classes with is that um, many of them use two different chocolates. Excuse me. <coughs> the way I was trained, and many chefs still do this, is you use two different chocolates in a recipe. 
One's going to be for flavor, and one's going to be for texture. Um, for our confections, it's going to be for mouthfeel. Um, and so I do tend to use two different dark chocolates, or two different chocolates in all of our recipes. Um, for the brownies, I also use an extra dark um, cocoa pepper. So that turns to, I actually don't eat our brownies, because they're really rich. Um, I used to eat brownies before I started making them every day, and now I don't eat them anymore. I just, you know, taste the edge of the pan, and then I know it's good to go. But in our brownie recipe, we use a 70%, a 55%, and then we use a, a, a cocoa powder. So once I find a recipe that works, I don't change the, the combination. Um, in our case, in our uh, display case at the store, and I would say for about 90, 90% uh, of our confections, I use two, there are two chocolates that are like my core. Um, I only use one milk chocolate from Barry Caldwell. Um, and then the dark chocolate that I use is not very popular here in the US. It's very popular in Belgium, Belgium but not here. Um, I'm able to get it here. Sometimes it's a little hard sourcing it, but it's a 55% cacao, um, but it's, it, the way they number the recipes and how they do the percentage, it's, a, it's called a refined or excellent um, dark. And the reason I use that is because it's, it's um, I want to say it's a universal dark, and that it appeals to most palates. Some people come to the shop, I only eat 70%, I only eat this percent. Um, and sometimes the numbers you see on the package isn't what you really think it is, because they, they, they calculate the percent cacao based on the amount of sugar, cocoa liquor, and cocoa butter. So two 70% chocolates, even from the same company, won't taste the same, um, because of the beans and because of the amount of the cocoa liquor in it and cocoa butter. And I can give you a good example. The 70% that I use for the brownies, I don't really like it. It's a little bitter for me. But there's a 70% that I use. It's a fermented um, chocolate that we use in our dark chocolate bars. It's amazing. It's really mild. It's very, um, uh, for lack of a word, kind of a subtle 70%. So the answer is yes. I use multiple chocolates in every recipe. Once I get the recipe the way I like it, I don't change it. Um, um, I, I, there was one time I couldn't source the chocolate and I had to do a tweak. Nobody else noticed. I did. And it was just enough to get me to, you know, my, my next delivery. But that was a great question. I hope we answered it. Other questions? Yes. So, in another era, chocolate shops would stop making chocolate during the summer. Mm -hmm. And they would switch to hard candies or other things. So, do you have that necessity? Or do you ship things with ice? Or how do you work around all that? So, we don't do any hard candies. Um, it's just not. No, no, I didn't think you did. But, but in another era, it was impossible to deal with chocolate. Yeah. There so wasn't enough we so um, we do make chocolate all year round. The sales are a little slower in July. We do ship all year round. So I um, there are a couple ways around that. One, we don't do ice packs, um, and I actually check the weather. Like depending on where it's going, I check the weather. Like we tell people if you order online. We, we, give, we give ourselves a five-day window, um, and I look. And so if it's going to Florida or California any time of year, we definitely ice pack it down, and then we try to ship it as fast as it would get there. Like, you know, whatever the priority mail, that kind of thing. In the summertime, what I tend to do is do shipments at night, um, and then I ship earlier in the week so that we know it's going to get there. And I, again, I look at a lot of the five-day forecasts. If I know it's going to cool down in New York in a day or two, I'll hold the shipment. 
so that the weather is cooler and it shifts. I mean, I'm, it, I can do that now just because of where our online sales are. Um, as we grow, you know, that's something I'll work with, you know, an expert. Um, because even with the ice packs, you only have 24 hours. And with dry ice, you have 24 hours. So we don't ship to PO boxes, and we always tell people to kind of be on the lookout. Um, you know, but there, I know there are a couple that, you know, they, I did a shipment this summer, and they left it on the doorstep in Florida. And I knew that was a, I knew that was a wrap. I was just kind of like, no matter how much ice I put in, it was 90 degrees. And I was waiting for the client to get back to me and say, you know, I'm going to the chocolate melted. But they never did. So I don't know if they put it back in the refrigerator or, you know, but, but we do some, we do all year round, we ship all year round. Um, and I'm a little different from other businesses. I mean, I know, I know the other small chocolate businesses here in Chicago, and most charge extra for shipping during the summer. We don't. I know. We just, we factor that into the cost. And again, like I said, I just, I pay attention to the weather and then I try to ship at night. Um, or at the end of the day, so it's not, at least it's not sitting on a truck the day we ship it. Um, it's going to go right out to wherever the distribution centers are in the city. Yes? So where do you draw inspiration from the bakers that create the chocolate cookies? So, um, so we do a mix. Yeah, so where do I draw inspiration for the flavors of our truffles and our chocolates? So I, we tend to be um, a hybrid of traditional and contemporary. So we have, there are businesses that are totally sort of, you know, all modern. Um, I tend to be more traditional, and so I tend to draw inspiration from two things. And our traditional is how do we make great chocolate better? So the flavors that you would normally see, how do we make it better with all natural ingredients, right? On the contemporary, I tend to draw from things that I like or hear about. I My personal favorite is I love citrus and I love herbs with chocolate. So we have a couple of flavors like our cilantro lime, our lemon basil, these are orange ginger. Those are combinations that I really love. Um, and then I really love nuts. So sometimes it'll come from a scent. Like I um, remember Bath and Body Works a few years ago, they had this mango pomegranate lotion. And I thought that would be cool for a chocolate. Like I just love the smell, it was not. It was not good. <laughs> I had one moment, we, we featured it at like a market, we were doing a Valentine's Day market, one woman was like, couldn't quite get the mango with the white chocolate the way that I wanted. So it comes from different places, sort of everyday life, things that I like. I get a lot of ideas from the, the chefs that I do, uh, take classes with, um, just things that they do that I wouldn't think of, and then just sort of how do we put them on chocolate sauce and on it. And then I get requests too, like one of our um, really good selling products at the store is our cashew turtles. And we started, we only sold pecan. And even though I knew cashew existed, I was like, no one's going to buy them. And actually, a lady that worked at Subway was like, you don't do cashew turtles? And I was like, well, we'll make them for you. And if people like them, we'll keep selling them. And they love them. So um, we get suggestions, uh, things that I like, and then things from books, and then things from chefs. And, um, and then just sort of your everyday, what I think would go well. Can we start with you, and then we'll go to the lady with the black and gray, and we'll come back to Scott. Yes. Um, no. <laughs> yes. So, so, oh, so the question was that I, I mentioned that I don't really eat brownies anymore because I'm around them all the time. Do I find 
find myself not wanting to eat chocolate because I'm wearing the wrong time? And the answer is no, I eat chocolate every day. I eat a piece of chocolate every day. The, the dark truffle that I, I brought as our sample is my favorite, and I eat one of those every day, or a creamy dark. Um, sometimes I, I, I eat whatever's broken or left over, literally. So if a chocolate cracks or you know, a turtle doesn't come out, I don't really eat our turtles much. As much as I used to love turtles, too, I don't eat those much anymore. I really love our truffles and our pompons, but I, mean, I still eat chocolate every single day. Yes? Um, do you do you sell any chocolate drinks, and if not, do you plan to expand into that arena? So, do I sell any chocolate drinks? If not, do we plan to, to expand into that arena? So the answer is yes. Um, so no, currently yes. So last year I couldn't get it together to do the hot chocolate. Um, when we first opened, we had coffee. We had this really high-end coffee machine, all this expensive coffee, and nobody bought it. And now we got rid of the coffee machine and people are coming in, do you have coffee? I'm like, oh, <laughs> So this winter, we will do hot chocolate. I'm just waiting for the weather to, to just consistently cool down. Um, so when we get to the 50s consistently, we'll do our own uh, signature hot chocolate at the shop. Scott? Oh, when I stopped in at your store this last week, you had just come from teaching. Can you talk about the kind of teaching that you do? Thank you. I forgot about that. So, um, because I spent so much time in the, the chocolate shop, I started teaching this semester. So, um, as much as I um, haven't been in education for a while, it's still such a, a part of who I am. So, I work uh, with a nonprofit called Future Founders part time. And the mission is that the belief is that every youth can be an entrepreneur. So, they work with Chicago Public Schools and we teach entrepreneurship to middle and high school students. So on Mondays and Wednesdays, I teach um, entrepreneurship skills to high school and middle school students. And I love it. I'm exhausted. By the time I, I do still come back and do production on those days. We have to be closed Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Um, and so, but yes, I, we teach them entrepreneurship skills, like the skills of entrepreneur, entrepreneurs' habits, how to work together. We give them really good examples of you know entrepreneurs. And then we help them create their own businesses. So. Um, throughout the semester, they're working on their own business and teams, and it's an app-based business because for this generation behind us, two generations behind us, uh, technology is everything. So we're working with them to create application mobile app businesses. Um, so that's what I do when I'm not at the chocolate shop and the chocolate. Other questions? Yes. This is a great question. I just. Um, I want to tell you how I'm thrilled right now for you and how much I love you in the traffic. So um, it's either your real building to our area and, and to have continued success. Thank you so much. I'm going to repeat that comment um, because it made my heart just uh, warm and fuzzy all over. Um, that you love our chocolates and that you love that we are in the community and that you wish us great success. Thank you. Thank From the bottom of my heart. Beth is a teacher and she's a chocolate maker. I remember you. You <laughs> talk when you come to the store. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that means a lot to me because on most days, and I said this in the CBS interview, um, most days are really hard. I mean, you, my customers are what keep me going. I mean, there have been times where at least once a month, usually it's 
two in the morning, three in the morning. I'm trying to finish an order that's due in a few hours or something like that. And I just wonder, like, why are you doing this? You're not profitable. Like, we're still very young in the business. We're not over head this morning, what we're bringing in. Um, it's really hard work. You're on your feet, you know, 16 hours a day. You make more money working in education. You haven't had vacation in two years. I was with my family in a really long time. So I started thinking about all the creature comforts of my old life. And then I think about how exhausted, like I've never, I'm being really candid, I've never experienced this level of job exhaustion in my life ever, ever. And sometimes I ask myself, like, why are you doing this? No one would really miss you. Like they'd be like, oh, she calls, oh, okay. And then life would go on. But then I think, you know, one, that's just not what I'm made of. It's just not who I am. I haven't been at it um, too long to make me want to stop. Um, and again, my customers, like every time I feel that way within a day, like literally within a few hours, I get a text or an email or someone posts a comment and I remember this is why you do it. Because you really do spread joy with chocolate. And then I remember I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Um, you're still less than 10 years old. You've only been in this space for under two years old. Yeah, under two years. And I remember uh, recently I met with a banker at PNC Bank. We were talking about, you know, he worked in the agribusiness area. We were talking about growing the business and how the challenge is around growing an artisan business because we don't have extended shelf life. Our products are tend to be three or four weeks, so we don't have the good the shelf life and the first few shelf life and just sort of the challenges in growing with that. And I was meeting with a partner from IMAC. They do manufacturing, so they're really helping me think about how to scale like a manufacturer, but scale artisan chocolates. And I remember the banker from PNC Bank, he's like, oh yeah, small businesses bring you cash. And I thought, okay, it's not just me. Because sometimes, a lot of times when you're in a business, and I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs, you feel like it's just you, like what you're experiencing is just you, and then I realize I'm right where others are, I'm right where others have been, and I'm right where I'm supposed to be. But when you're tired and it's one o'clock in the morning, like it was this morning when I was finishing the morning for delivery, you're not really rational. You're just like really tired. So your 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 compliment means a lot to me because that's what keeps me going on those really really hard things. So thank you. Yes. Yes. I just wanted to say, and this has been my experience. I think life is life is tough. It's challenging. It's fleeting. It's a lot of times you don't reach a level of satisfaction. And when I find something or experience something that attains kind of a, a perfection, something that is just, it's totally experiential, I have to share it. I just have to, I'm compelled to share it. And that was the experience that I had with your turtles. And um, that's, why that's how I talk to Scott because I know he's very food oriented but I just feel you know those those little gifts that we get in life that it's something it's beyond it's trans it's transportive um, I again I feel it has to be shared I think that it increases my joy to have other people share it so that's what your chocolate has done for me. 
I'm sorry, my, my eyes are a little uh, glazed. Um, thank you. I, I'm, so I'm going to repeat it back for the recording. Uh, life is fleeting. Um, there isn't a lot of certainty, and um, we don't always find satisfaction in life. But you found satisfaction in our turtles. <laughs> and that when you find something that's experiential, how important it is to share with others. And that you found joy in our chocolate and just believe it's important to share that with others. That means more than I can say more. I, there is a, I don't have a vocabulary to tell you what that means. Besides, thank you. Yes, I um, have a quick question. Um, for those of you, for the state, for those of you that haven't tried Dr. Thomas's only crunch, <laughs> get acquainted. <laughs> and my question to you is, how did you come up with the recipe for your almond crunch? Okay, so Dino's question uh, first was a recommendation. If you haven't had the almond crunch, you should have it. Uh, get acquainted. And then the second was, how did I come up with the recipe? So, um, just for the record, we are out of that today. So, don't come today. Tomorrow, the almond crunch. We do sell out of it. So the almond crunch was one of those things, and I, this actually goes back to the question we asked about how do I come up with inspiration. So some things are pure experimental. I remember it was summer, it was a year I started the business, 2011, um, and I remember vividly because I was testing a lot of different recipes. I got on these different books and I was testing these recipes and I wanted to do something coffee related. And so I remember uh, that night, my, one of my nephews was visiting me and I remember I could barely get him off the video games like he was ODing in the summertime. And um, this is why I remember creating the recipe because, so I tried like three different chocolates. We did white, dark, and milk, just the sort of typical common dark. Then I had like three different toffee recipes, and then I had like seven or eight different nuts. I love nuts. And so I had like maybe 15 to 20 different variations. Remember, I'm a mathematician, so we mashed one chocolate, but like we did all the different variations of the nuts, so the toffee recipes and the chocolates. But what I remembered was that I had them on the counter downstairs. My nephew could cook. We both, I was in the office working. My nephew was in the guest uh, room across the way. And each of us at different times would keep going downstairs to try the, the, the different ones. And I kept going back for that one. Like I would eat a piece, go back upstairs, get on the computer. And I'm like, Really good. And I'm gonna go back down. I'll get another piece. And I remember one time we both came down. Like he got off the video game, I got off the computer at the same time, and we were both kind of going for the same thing. So um, I remember it was just it was experimentation. I took all these different recipes, and then I was like, oh, I'm gonna try it with this instead of that. I'm gonna cook it longer. I'm gonna try it with this chocolate, not that chocolate. And then we debuted it at a market. And this is a funny story. So at the time, I was making it a little different than we, we have it now. It's kind of like a bar for, I, I, like, I like squares, it's a symmetry thing. And I remembered um, it was, it's hard to cut. It's, it breaks into pieces because it's like coffee. And I remember we did a, a market of one of my best friends. I, all my friends who were like lawyers and PhDs put on aprons and helped me like that. And I remember our first market, we sold out. And I, the woman who ran the shared kitchen, she said, well, you, know, you don't have to throw the pieces away, you put the pieces in the bag and sell it. So we sold out of the regular pieces. And I remember saying to Nikki, she's like, we sold out, she was so excited. I'm like, yay. I said, well, we can sell it. She's like, no, we can't sell broken pieces. That's not your brand. I'm like, okay, well, 
We're selling the half price. And then she got so excited. She's like, they're selling, they're selling. Let's pop them back up. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so that was how the Almond Crunch came to be. And we actually were a finalist for Good Food Award for that. By um, the National Good Food Awards, we entered the contest last year. And we were in the top five in the country for that particular so, thank you. We will take one more question. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm curious about the, the effects of chocolate on the body. Do you have any feelings yourself, or do you explore the, the different parts no, of the country? No, happy. <laughs> <laughs> happy. So, I was wondering if she had examples of how people react to it. Absolutely. So the question was um, questions about the effects of chocolate on the mind. There's a lot of research coming out of Europe on the effects of chocolate, both mental and physical. So you've read that you know dark chocolate can help you know, your cholesterol and your heart rate. They're also doing research, and research is coming out that chocolate really does affect your mental and emotional state. That it does um, trigger, and I'm not going to remember the hormone, but it, it triggers something in your brain that actually makes you happy. Um, it triggers good mood, and you know there's research coming out of Europe that also shows that it's not just dark chocolate, but milk chocolate. There's some data that show that milk chocolate, in terms of mood and happiness, actually has stronger results than dark chocolate. I believe we have those links on our website. If not, I know we do post. We I don't do it regularly, but there was a time that we used to post once a week. Uh, something about the health benefits of chocolate or chocolate research. There's a lot, if you just Google health benefits of chocolate or you know, dark chocolate, milk chocolate, a lot of that research will come up. It's, it's coming out of Europe, but it's very, very positive about the, the positive effects of chocolate on your, your mind and body. So it's out there. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.